2 Corinthians 12, verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God might have, may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. This is my third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit. If I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope, hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You can keep your Bibles open. Kids are going to go out to their groups. Great. Well, as I mentioned before, um, we are jumping in right at the end of this letter uh, to the Corinthian church, the second letter that we're told. Um, and, and so it is a bit odd to do that, isn't it, just to jump in at the very end. Um, but I hope that we're going to sort of pick up uh, where, where we've got to, where, what the whole theme of the letter is uh, from, from this passage today. Let's start by thinking. Um, I was watching this show on Friday night, and um, there was a really good sofa full of celebrities. Um, the A-list, I think. You know, these people are, you know, they just, they look the deal. Uh, they've been in the best movies. They, they're so confident. They talk so well, and they just, you know, you might not recognise any of them. Um, <laughs> but the middle one uh, is Jude Law. Um, there's a few other people who have been in uh, some great films. Um, and I think the guy on the right is actually Rick Astley. Um, well, we, are, we do love celebrities, don't we? Um, and I, I think the reason we love celebrities is because we want people who look good, sound confident, and big themselves up. We actually like them because we'd quite like to be like that ourselves. 
Um, so, we, so we follow them. We listen to them. We listen to what they say. Well, that kind of thing is exactly what the Corinthian church had started to do, what they bought into. This was a young church, and it was founded by Paul's ministry and on his teaching. But they have all too quickly run after more impressive people. We've read about them throughout this letter. And they are more impressive, more confident. They are like the A-list. These are other people that the church are listening to. And we get to the final chapter of this letter. We discover in verse 2 that Paul has written many times to them, telling them to stop. He's even been with them twice, visited them. He says this is going to be his third visit. To try to work it through with them. And the big thing being challenged here is Paul. With all his sufferings and his unimpressive style, can he really be the real deal? Is he he speaking on Christ's behalf? But actually there's more at stake here than Paul's self-esteem. Because the truth that Paul gave to the church wasn't about himself at all. It was about Jesus. Paul was an apostle, an eyewitness. He was telling them about Jesus, the truth. Um, This is a picture here. Um, My mother-in-law is Maria, and she works in a secondary school, and she has the naughtiest class. And they give her a hard time. They're always questioning her, challenging her. She, She loves them to bits, but they do her head in. And actually, when someone defies a teacher, what they're doing is they're, they're rejecting what they teach. They're rejecting what they teach. They're saying, oh, you've got nothing to offer me. I'll defy you. But if you defy a true teacher, as the Corinthian church were doing, what you're actually doing is rejecting the truth. It goes like that, doesn't it? Defy a teacher, you reject what they teach. But to defy a true teacher, that's a rejection of the truth. And that's exactly what Paul is worried about. He knows that they're just one step away from losing that truth, the truth about Jesus. In fact, some already have. In verse 3 at the start, it says, some seek proof that Christ is speaking in Paul. And from the opening of chapter 13, we can see that nothing has really changed. Some have listened to Paul's previous words, but there's still others who are, who are denying the truth and refuse to see that they are wrong. And if they don't listen this one last time, Paul will deal with it himself. Now this might sound surprising to us. Um, if our only impression of churches is people always flattering and never challenging anyone, um, if we've always operated with the idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you don't hurt anyone. If you, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you don't hurt anyone. That's not what's going on here. There is a real danger, isn't there, that Paul is talking about. And it's what people do with the truth about Jesus. And that's why Paul is so passionate in urging, urging them to listen. He's written all these letters to them. He's visited them to try and urge them to listen. And actually, that's why we need to listen too. 
We need to listen to what Paul's saying. And the first thing that Paul says is this. He says, stop rejecting the truth. As I said, there's some still in the church who are living in a way or speaking in a way that rejects the truth about Jesus. They're defying Paul as a a teacher. And that shows that they reject the truth. In verse 20 to 21, we just read it of the previous chapter, verse chapter 12. Paul paints a picture of what he fears his trip to them, his final visit will uncover. He says this, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may, not, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may, not, you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. So that Paul's describing, isn't he? Painting the picture of the kind of people that he's speaking to. And what he says to them is, stop rejecting the truth. And we've, we've heard that Paul has repeatedly called on the church to confront them. He's brought it before them twice. And this is his third and final warning. But make no mistake, Paul will act And actually, we see that in verse 2, don't we? I will not spare you. Was it verse 3? Verse 2, yeah. Um, It's very strong words, isn't it? I will not spare you. But Paul's strongest and final warning here is for those who continue to oppose the truth about Jesus. And why, why is this threat? so strong come on Paul calm down mate why is it so strong why is it such a strong threat well Paul knows the offenders are in danger of much much more than him Paul's return is one thing but the return of Jesus well that's far more final isn't it and when Jesus returns he is going to judge So out of concern for the offenders, Paul tries to wake them up, giving them a flavour of that final judgement. Time is running out for those who reject the truth. And Paul's concern for God's people, who are amongst them, means that he will take those offenders and he will throw them out of the church. He's going to confront those who undermine the truth about Jesus, because it spreads. So this is pretty serious. Um, And Paul does give one answer to their accusation. Um, It's there in the middle part of the uh, chapter. Um, It's in verse 3 and verse 4. He does give one answer to their accusation. that is Christ speaking in you? It's, It's actually one example. And as we'd expect from a true teacher, that example is Jesus. The only example that Paul will point them to is that of Jesus. And in verse 3 and 4, let's read it. Since you you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he, Christ, was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, 
but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Paul takes them right to the heart of the Christian message, and it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And actually, he, 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 uses, he speaks about Jesus to, to show the defence of weak apostles. Remember, what they were thinking was, Paul, you're really unimpressive, mate. Like, you look really weak, and, and, and these guys look more impressive. So what Paul does is says, hang about here. The one who we believe in, Jesus, on the cross, he was weak, wasn't he? He looked weak, yes? <laughs> Very weak, okay? He was put on the cross, crucified, put to death. But where is he now? He lives in power. And so what Paul is saying is, don't be surprised if the true messengers of Jesus look the same. Whether they too have marks of weakness and of power. Not the kind of power that you think, like big muscles, but powerful authority. They have all the authority of Jesus, even though they look weak. Do you get that? That's the only thing that Paul points to. This is literally the last thing that he's going to say to them. And that's the only thing he's going to give them, is look at Jesus. Um, but as an apostle, Paul must defend the truth about Jesus. He has to. He must. In verse 8, Paul says this truth restrains everything they do. Let's read it, verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Whatever happens, Paul must speak the truth to them in love. And if need be, his words will rebuke and discipline them. But he doesn't want that. <laughs> That's the whole reason he's, he's writing. Uh, if you read verse 10, he says, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up. And not for tearing down. So Paul gives one answer, one example, to their, in response to their accusation. But then he turns it around and he gives them one challenge. And it's this. Do you have the truth? I think genuinely Paul is questioning, are they really followers of Jesus and we see that in verse 5 um, and 6 let's read it Paul says examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves or do you not realise this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test so there is a test they've been testing Paul but there is a test, and it's for them. Are they, are they really followers of Jesus? Um, those who question whether the truth is in Paul should ask the same of themselves. Paul turns it around. It's the kind of line that Maria in the classroom might take with the most rebellious students, yeah? She senses, she just gets a whiff of an attitude so bad, it actually blindly assumes that she is the one on trial 
the teacher. The attitude's so bad, like she feels like she's being on trial here. But she knows full well, doesn't she, that she has been appointed to the role. And she has all the backing of the school. So she would not need to defend herself. Paul does not need to defend himself. He doesn't do that pitifully. Maria only needs to remind the class that they are the ones sitting the exams. That's all she needs to do. So she will say something like, um, what, what grade are you hoping to get in your GCSEs? Or um, how, how are those GCSEs going to go for you? She flips it round. And that's exactly what, in the same way, Paul calls that, uh, these, these people in the church to examine themselves. Test yourself. Do you have the truth? That's the second thing Paul says. Uh, we've got our traffic light. Stop rejecting the truth. What was, what was uh, Rebecca's word? Get ready. Do you have it? Do you have the truth? That's a good question. And then we've got a final thing, um, which is the green. So after all that has happened in the church, you might be expecting Paul to wash his hands of them and say, that's it. You know, I, I give up. I, I give up. But in his parting words here, Paul tells them that he's praying for them. We see that in uh, verse 7. Paul knows that mere submission from them, it doesn't actually achieve anything. Paul knows that the only real and lasting difference is heart change. He doesn't just want to win the argument, but he wants to win their hearts. And their hearts will only be won as they see God's goodness and as they mourn their rebellion. And so he prays. He trusts in the God who can move people's hearts. And his prayer, as we'll look at, describes what it looks like to have the truth. That's the first thing. That's the third thing. What it looks like to have it. What it looks like to have the truth. And as I said, that's in verse 7. So we're going to look at that now. It says, But we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. There's two, two words, really, to describe what Paul prays for them. And they're both beginning with R, so that's pretty handy. First one is repentance. He prays for them in verse 7 that they would do no wrong and that they would do what is right. There'd be such a change of heart that they'd go from definitely doing the wrong thing to, to, to not doing the wrong thing. That they would go from not doing the right thing to doing it. That's real change. That's repentance. But the second thing that Paul prays for is a great Christian word. If you want to take home one Christian word that you're going to learn for this week, is this word, restoration. And we see that in verse 9. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. 
Your restoration is what we pray for. And then in verse 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comes up twice. It's such a great word. What what does restoration mean? I know you can restore a house. Making new. Making new. Thank you, Verona. So it's making new, but what is it? Making new a house? What do you think? Us. And, and what, about, what about us? So making us new, yeah? Actually, I think it's restoring our relationship. And I think it's restoring two relationships. The first and big relationship, the restoration, that is restored, made new, and fixed, is that relationship with God. And because of that, people are restored to each other. Their relationships that are broken are fixed and restored. They're made new. It's a great word. The fixing of that one divine relationship results in the transformation of earthly relationships. And Paul wants us to see that there is great joy and love for those who have the truth. But there is great sorrow and disunity between those who question and deny it. This new life couldn't be more different than the one before. Remember the words Paul uses in verse 20 to describe what he fears. Jealousy, quarrelling, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. That was all disunity and sorrow. There's no joy. Conflict. But in verse 11, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice. He says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I think he's made his point. The transformation and what it looks like to have the truth is not just inward is outward it's not just what we know but how we live and it's seen in the relationships we have and this is the kind of unity in verse 13 if you're wanting to know it tells us oh verse 12 sorry it tells us to be quite affectionate with each other doesn't it Mm -hmm. (laughs) greet one another with a holy kiss that was the culture I guess um, you, 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 I know that Verona would slap me if I went to kiss her, um, probably. Um, but there is warmth and affection here, isn't there? Warmth and affection. It's not just a sort of, all right, mate. It's a family greeting. And isn't it interesting that Paul calls this greeting, what does it say? Greet one another with a holy kiss. He calls this greeting holy. This thought was different for me because I tend to think of personal holiness, like my battle with sin or temptation or to do the right thing. But actually the hallmark of holiness here is unity. It's a relationship. 
So what it looks like to have that truth, the truth about Jesus, is repentance, yes, but restoration, love. The hallmark of holiness in God's people is speaking the truth in love. So what should we take home from this? Uh, If you're new to church and you're listening on our website, that's great. Um, Well, this part of the Bible shows you how we know anything about Jesus. The apostles, the eyewitnesses, having met Jesus personally, were given by him the special role of ensuring what was heard and believed. And we can see that people like Paul took this responsibility very seriously. He didn't do it for his own status or convenience, but because it is so important that people know and trust what the cross means for them. It would be great for you to look into it. Consider what Paul says is the driving message of Christianity that makes all the difference. It's not a motivational try-harder speech. Do it yourself, no. It's come and take a look at a man who hung on a Roman cross and find out why he did it. And find out that he did it for you. Wouldn't it be great if, as a result of this brief introduction, you took the time to investigate the claims of Jesus and his death and resurrection? Remembering the urgency and seriousness of what Paul is saying. Uh, Maybe you're kind of in the middle. And there will be some who have got used to churches where sinful living and denial of the Bible are public and they go unchecked and unchallenged. Perhaps, maybe, those people in those churches have started to deny the truth themselves. From this passage, the evidence of this will be that something's missing. There won't be warm and real and genuine relationship with other believers. There won't be any warmth or affection between them and others. And for those, it's it's important that we consider the severity of Paul's warning here. And his challenge is, do you have it? Do you really have the truth about Jesus? Take that away. Have a think about that. But don't fool yourself that you're in the faith when you might not be. And you can pray for God's mercy today to step into the joy of restored relationship with him and with others. Maybe you're a believer. Well, the truth is that this is a real danger within any church. This was a church that Paul had that had Paul as a, a first leader, you know, shared the gospel with them, and, and very, see how quickly things change. Things change when we start to look to the next new and exciting leader to make it all real for us. We go after the celebrity, the impressive. We're far more attracted to that. People who are confident, People who speak about themselves a bit more. We want to be like them. We need to to admit that we are susceptible to that. And that we do that. But there will always be impressive people out there. Who deny the message of Jesus. There will be impressive people 
who deny the message of Jesus. And it may not be immediately obvious. But they'll only lead us to take our eyes off Jesus. What does Paul say to us to keep us from them? Well, he says we need a firm conviction that what we have in our hands is the words of eyewitness apostles and it's the truth about Jesus. If we don't have a rock-solid, firm conviction that that is the truth about Jesus passed down to us by the people who saw and heard and met Jesus, then it would be really easy for others to say, listen to me. And at the heart of that truth passed down to us is the humiliation of the cross. But what followed the cross showed Christ's ultimate authority which continues today wherever his teaching is heard and humbly accepted. And ahead of our church annual review, you can call it that this Tuesday, uh, why don't we pray that for ourselves and for those in this church and for those in other churches, Mark's church down the road, why don't we pray that they would hold on to that authorised truth? about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, when Paul says, I will not spare you, perhaps the Corinthians uh, sort of laughed back, said, oh, that's uh, him throwing his weight around. Um, Nothing to be concerned about. Uh, What's Paul going to do? But um, we hear this seriousness of the truth behind what Paul is saying. That one day you will return and the truth about you will be seen. And those who have rejected that truth will uh, be held accountable. And those who have caused others to reject that truth will be held accountable by you. We pray um, that you would help us to think this through as a church, um, as those who would call ourselves Christians, perhaps. Um, We pray for those who perhaps um, would question a lot of what the Bible says about you. We pray uh, for them. We pray that that we would all examine ourselves um, and see whether we are trusting what is true or, or what we think ourselves. And we thank you for what you've given us, uh, the message about the cross uh, that we could be so certain of, and the authority that you have uh, in the church. We pray that we would live under your authority, joyfully, listening to, to everything that you would have us do, obedient to you. We pray that you challenge us where our lives don't match up with what we say, Um, We pray that we would love each other warmly and with affection. Thank you that you restore us and make us new. Amen. Amen.